Well, good morning. And uh, I don't think you guys realized when you walked in this morning, you were sacrificially loving me by listening to my teaching. So thank you. Uh, as us TS guys continue to develop, um, thank you for your active service and helping us do that, uh, providing feedback, even encouragement. Um, it's just always so helpful. So as Tim said, we'll be in Titus 3. Um, and providentially, I do think it falls right in line with exactly what we've been studying uh, in Respectable Sin series. Uh, but what I'm excited about this morning is it's, although there are more things to um, squirm in our seats about, more imperatives that we need to listen to, there is a fuel and there's a motivation in this passage that is profound um, and very instructive. So I found it encouraging. Um, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to to Titus 3. <clears throat> so we'll start with just a, an initial thought. I was reading an article this week, um, a secular article, that was talking about corporate success. And this was the secret that they gave to a successful person. Not this, sorry. This is not what they gave. <laughs> the secret was every successful person... The secret to every successful person is that they never forget where they came from. So something we've all heard, right? We'll slightly adjust it here and redeem it. (laughs) A common quality of every mature Christian is that they routinely reflect on their condition before Christ. They routinely reflect on their condition before Christ. So yes, although this this quote um, in this article was regarding corporate success, I do think never forgetting where we came from is instructive for God's people as well. We are a forgetful people. And if you read the Old Testament, if you've even just dove into really anywhere in the Old Testament, you're going to see very quickly that the Israelites were called to remember God's faithful acts on their behalf. And the reason being is this actually fueled their faith in the present. And this is true of us, too. We have experienced a great exodus ourselves. Uh, We have experienced a rescue from our own slavery. And now we are to reflect on who we once were. So before we dive into our passage this morning, I think it's just important to orient ourselves to this wonderful letter. And I won't spend much time here just because I'm going to try to get everyone out, at least relatively on time. Um, But just in this short letter... Titus, a Greek, um, an uncircumcised Greek for that matter, is written this letter from Paul. So if you glance over to just Titus uh, chapter 1, verse 4, you'll see how Titus is addressed. Paul says to Titus, my true child in the common faith. So Titus was heavily involved in, in Paul's ministry at the church at Corinth. Uh, they had a long history of ministry um, efforts and labor together. Even in 2 Corinthians alone, he's mentioned nine times by Paul. Titus is described as a brother. He's described as a fellow worker. And here in Titus, uh, in this island of Crete, you, know, you can look down at verse 5 of chapter 1, and you'll see there that Paul actually left Titus on this island to set in order what remains. Uh, A heavy, heavy responsibility, no doubt. So Titus is left here on this island, um, 
And that sounds maybe good at first, right? Man, it's not a bad deal. He's left on an island. It's pretty beautiful. This was no small task. Um, if you look down to verse 12, we'll see uh, written forever in the history books how the Cretans are referenced. Verse 12, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Wow. So that is a concise description <laughs> of these, these Cretans. And this is where Titus is left. This is a rather large island, a pagan island. And Paul is entrusting this ministry to Titus. So Titus' world is not much different than ours. And this is why we must listen to the same instruction given to him. So after laying forth the qualifications of an elder, um, Paul instructs Titus um, at the end of chapter 1 uh, to, to oppose these false teachers within the church. These are rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers. You'll see there in verse 10 of chapter 1. These were men of the circumcision. So Titus was a uncircumcised Greek. And the opposition from these Judaizers had to be fierce. And this is what he was up against. He was not only up against a pagan culture, he was up against opposition even within the church. So Paul will say here in chapter 3, I'm sorry, chapter 2, just to catch us up, we, we have instructions to specific groups within the church. So just glance at chapter 2. We won't go through the whole thing here, but Paul addresses older men. He address, addresses younger men. He addresses women. And he addresses uh, servants or slaves head-on, each of these groups. Specific instruction for them. But as we approach our passage this morning in chapter 3, Paul is addressing the entire church. The entire church. John MacArthur says, um, and I think this is helpful to just to orient us really what the whole thrust of the letter is. John MacArthur says a major thrust of this epistle is to equip the churches of Crete for effective evangelism. And that goes without being said, right? I mean, this is a, a pagan environment that they're in. But this is the thrust. Paul says here that if they were to abandon their godly conduct, there would be tragic implications for their evangelistic efforts. So if you're anything like me, there's a growing aversion to the world. Um, I catch myself having conversations literally every week talking about how far off the world is, uh, what's, what's the point, everyone's in a downward spiral. This morning I'm asking you to look, um, to look at the world. <clears throat> but what, what's encouraging here is Paul actually gives us a fuel because he realizes how daunting this is. He has us look at the world through a particular lens. In Titus 3, we're going to be asked to look at the world through our own condition, our own staggering rescue. So if there's a time we must remember where we came from and who we once were apart from Christ, it is now. So if you're already there in Titus 3, look there at verse 1 with me. In this passage, we're going to have three truths to inform our godly walk in an ungodly world. Three truths to inform our godly walk in an ungodly world. So let's read this passage this morning. Paul says to Titus, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, 
to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So I know what you're thinking. How are we going to cover this in the next 35, 40 minutes? It is an ambitious task we have this morning for sure. Um, And one of the dangers, I think, with at least a a short amount of time with a, a passage like this is it could easily turn into just a word study. Um, Paul gives a lot of just, he's peppering a lot of descriptions in this passage, Uh, and I think for the sake of time, we're going to try to just do that in a concise way. Um, So if you do have free time on your own, I do encourage you to look into some of these descriptions more closely, but we won't have time this morning to do that. Um, We'll just do it briefly. So as you can see on the screen, um, our first truth in verses 1 and 2, is an impartial conduct is required. So the first thing we need to know this morning is an impartial conduct is required. So Paul says at the beginning of verse 1, he says, remind them. Remind them. So what's implied here is these Christian believers have heard this instruction already. Um, As I said at the beginning of our time together, we are forgetful people, um, and so are these Christians. So Paul is telling them likely the same instruction that they heard even from possibly the epistle of Romans. Uh, We're all familiar with Romans 13, speaks to this directly. Um, And that was written about six to eight years earlier, so they could have already been familiar with that. Um, If not, they heard it directly from Paul. Um, So they need to be reminded just as we do. And if you thought you were getting a break from the Respectable Sin series, you're not this morning. Um, this first section is going to uh, to bring out the scalpel for sure. Um, so look there with me. He says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. So this, this first verse, I believe all three of these, subjection, obedience, and to be ready for every good, I, I believe all of these are associated with the governing authorities. Um, There's some debate there, but I think all three of these apply most directly to to the governing authorities. So we're, simply put, we're to place ourselves under their leadership. And that's what this first word means, to subject ourselves. He goes on to clarify further by saying this is not a mere passive submission, but we're to be obedient. It's not enough that these Christian believers accept their civil position, but it's to be manifested in active obedience. Active obedience. 
And then finally, in verse 1, Paul addresses even their posture under this dominion in earthly authorities. Then to verse 1, he says they are to be ready for every good deed. To be ready. So this is speaking to an eagerness. I mean, Paul's not letting them off the hook here. This is not an acceptance of their position. This is not merely just obeying out of obligation. They are meant to be eager, uh, to be standing ready to do these good deeds. So again, this isn't new information for them. But Paul, and actually his letter to Timothy, actually takes this further. We won't turn there this morning, but he actually says we're supposed to even pray for our leaders. Um, and this is Paul's constant refrain whenever he's speaking about governing authorities. It is a refrain to fight for a soft heart, a soft heart towards those in leadership. And entrusting ourselves to the Lord who's placed them there. And I think that's the foundational truth for us, right? Is if these men or even women are in positions of leadership, it's because God has placed them there and, and we're to trust Him with that. <clears throat> so if you continue to verse 2 with me, we're given a flurry of instructions. Uh, so once again, just hang on to your seats. <laughs> verse 2. Paul now opens the lens even wider as he gives these, these commands, these instructions in regards to all people. Verse 2, he says, To malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all people. So this first word, I'm actually not a fan of the NAS uh, translation to malign. Um, I just find that vague. I actually prefer the, the ESV or the, or the NIV. Because this, this prohibition here is actually speaking to our speech, um, which we've talked about thoroughly already in our study uh, with the respectable sins, but the idea here is to speak evil of no one, um, to slander no one. So let's just feel the weight of that this morning. <laughs> um, that is a that is a pervasive sin. I think it's it's something that we're all likely guilty of every single week. Um, somehow, I think we convince ourselves that you know within the body, it's these are undoubtedly to be avoided. We're never to slander one another. But interestingly, I think when we talk about the world or, or quote-unquote sinful people, we somehow convince ourselves that slander and malicious speech is okay. And Paul's saying here that, that we're not off the hook. Uh, we're not to slander anyone. So I think what's helpful is Paul or um, Bobby actually gave us a really helpful distinguish um, between prudent and responsible evaluations, right? and malicious speech. Uh, There is a balance, I think, to be had here. What Paul's not saying is we're not to draw conclusions. We're not to make discerning judgments. Um, What he's talking about here is an ill intent, um, an intent to tear people down. Um, There's no compassion. There's no patience. There's no gentleness. This is just an onslaught um, to our so-called enemies. So this first word here, um, after I'm sorry, after this this prohibition to not slander, we have we are to be peaceable. We're to be peaceable. So this is one who's not quarrelsome. This is an uncontentious person. And again, I must provide a caveat. Um, this is not a spineless individual. This is not a person without conviction. Um, there's a balance to be had here. We're to be an uncontentious. We're not looking for a fight. But nonetheless, we're standing our ground, and, and we stand on the truth. 
But what the emphasis here is we're to be peaceable. The conclusion when someone looks at our life is we're to be a peaceable person. And this next appeal is gentleness. And we won't spend much time on these just because we've, we've been discussing these already. But one scholar describes this as a mild and gentle friendliness. I love that. It's just so simple, right? A mild and gentle friendliness. And as Paul comes to the end of this exhaustive list in verse 2, he finishes with a bang. He says to Titus, remind these Christian believers, remind us this morning to show or demonstrate every consideration for all men. I mean, what a comprehensive uh, instruction we have here. Show every consideration for all men. Uh, We can't squirm out of this one. I mean, Paul really puts the nail in the coffin here and um, we need that. I think we need to, to hear with, with no ambiguity that we are to show every consideration for all men. And I think there is significance to even this word showing in your translation, or it may be demonstrating. I think what Paul's saying here is it's meant to be unmistakable. Um, as these Christian believers are on this pagan island, um, an island of evil beasts, lazy gluttons, Their conduct is meant to be a demonstration. Um, It's meant to be unmistakable. It's meant to display a compelling testimony of what a true Christian looks like. So as these Christians refuse to speak evil, as they pursue peace, and as they exude gentleness among the harsh people of Crete, and they evidence a kind consideration for all people, this large pagan island would have a tangible demonstration of Christ's love. So this, this week, I was actually stumbled upon a Q&A. Um, I actually watch these all the time. I love Q&As. But, um, and there was, this is a panel of men who have been in ministry for decades, uh, men who were seasoned, men who have seen a lot of ministry rigor and uh, trials. <clears throat> and this one man was asked a question by one of the the listeners there. And it was, how do we as Christians navigate this world that is growing in its wickedness and its downward spiral, um, this world that's around us that's in opposition to Christ? And his answer was uh, very compelling. Uh, He says, the first century world in which the early church was birthed was not so different than our world today. Yet never do you see the church instructed to begin a moral crusade. Instead, there's a common emphasis on the proclamation of the gospel through word and deed. He says, if you want to show a line that is crooked, draw a straight line beside it, and it will become self-evident. If you want to show that a line is crooked, draw a straight line beside it, and it will become self-evident. So I think this man understood the significance of our first truth this morning. Um, An impartial conduct is required. So as we go to verse 3, we are given our second truth. An intimate consideration is necessary. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Um, This is the fuel that I was already talking about at the beginning and that Tim mentioned uh, before We need fuel this morning, and Paul knows that. He knows what he's asking in verses 1 and 2 is, uh, can even come off as seemingly unreasonable. Um, This is difficult. And what Paul says here in verses 3 through 7 is, we need to consider our own story. Um, 
and not only ponder it, but it's, it's actually necessary uh, for us to, to take heed to, to the demands that, that he's placed. So Paul removes all doubt as to who these charitable demonstrations are to be directed to. And he does it in a piercing way. At this point, Paul wants us to understand that he really does mean all people. And his way of convincing us is to have us look at who we once were. He gives us a proper motivation, not merely to do these things out of obligation, but to carry out these instructions with compassion and true sympathy. Paul's saying here that what these lying, evil, lazy Christians are is what you once were. George Knight, uh, commentary on this passage, he says, Paul acknowledges that non-Christians are difficult to live with, and thus at this And thus they are not easy to be gentle, to be kind, to be considerate to them. These Christians must consider that God's kindness and love for humanity was shown to such people themselves. Paul is only asking them to show to others the attitude that God showed them when they were as sinful and hateful as non-Christians now are. So I think that, that hits the nail on the head. Paul is asking us, before we look at the world, um, with disdain, um, with hate, to first look at our testimony. Look at who we once were. <clears throat> so look at me at verse 3. Pastor Farrell has instructed us well with this word for. A uh, small word, but a powerful word, and it, it actually causes us to look back, right? So Paul's given us this instruction in verse 1 and 2, and he says, For we also once were. For we also once were. So what Paul's doing here in in verse 3 is he's saying that, yeah, I know all these commands I've given you in verse 1 and 2 are are heavy. But here's the reason why. Here's the reason why we're to do this. So as we continue to work through this verse, uh, once again, the temptation is to to go into a word study. But we're going to just go through these quickly. Uh, this, This description of who we once were. Paul begins by saying, and notice himself included, we were foolish ourselves. We were foolish ourselves. We were a simple people. We were ignorant without sound judgment. That was, that was who we are, who we were. Next he says to consider that we once were disobedient as well. A quality attributed to the false teachers in chapter 1 actually. Um, They were described as disobedient, and we once were that way. But we weren't merely rebellious. We weren't merely foolish. We were vulnerable. And Pastor Farrell even mentioned this this morning. We were once deceived. We were once deceived. We were aimlessly wandering. We were led astray. We were lost. As we continue to work through this list in verse 3, and hang in there with me, there's going to be a lot of them. We were once enslaved. So as we, as we come through Romans 6, we're familiar with this concept, right? Uh, we've been very familiar, actually, with this concept of slavery. Uh, so I won't spend too much time explaining this. It's pretty self-explanatory. We, are, we once were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. 
In summary, we were once enslaved to both the inward desires themselves, which is the lust, that's what Paul's speaking to here, and the indulgence of these desires. So not only the inward desire to carry out these things, but then the actual carrying out of them we were enslaved to. And both of which were various. There is a multitude of these, of these lusts. Brothers and sisters, we were slaves to a cruel master. <clears throat> and right when you think Paul's done, he continues. He goes on to describe how we spend ourselves. So what do we spend our time doing? Paul says here in verse 3, we once spent our time, spent our life in malice and in envy. In malice and in envy. The word translated as malice is a, it's a treacherous word. It's a word that refers to wickedness, um, ill-willed attitude. Uh, we often use the word malicious. Um, that's where this comes from. And then he also says that we were envious. We were an envious people. We spent our lives in envy. One scholar says this is a grudging spirit that cannot bear to contemplate someone else's prosperity. Can't even bear the thought of someone else doing well. Um, That's what we once were. And with these last two descriptions, malice and envy, the next two qualities come as no surprise. The word he uses next is only used once in the New Testament. It's the idea that we once were hateful. We were full of hate. Paul says here that we were once full of inward hate. And it's followed by a participle at the end of verse 3 that has the idea of continuously hating one another. So not only were we full of hate, we were actively and continuously hating one another. Okay, so I'm sure we all feel gross at this point. (laughs) I feel like we need to take a bath, but this is just so vital. And Paul actually mentioned this a couple weeks ago that we just as a society and even as a church just have an aversion to to talking about sin, uh, to talking about our condition. But it's helpful, and it's actually instructive. That's why Paul's doing it here. We need to look at what we, what we once were. We don't need to gloss this over. We don't need to put on a facade or, or paint this picture in a better light. We were a gross and detestable people. And that's the whole point, to look in the mirror. <clears throat> so Paul reminds these believers in Crete that what these pagan islanders currently are is exactly what they once were. In our context, those we have grown to hate in our society represent exactly who we were before Christ. So as we come to verse 4, we could spend, man, we could spend the next month studying uh, what Paul does here. But I do think this is a helpful outline um, of what he does, and I wish we could spend more time here. But what Paul's ultimately doing is he's, He's already described our condition. Now he's actually going to describe our rescue, um, our salvation. And as you can see, there's a timing, there's a basis, there's a means, and there's a purpose. I think right out of the gate, it's just essential that we realize none of this is arbitrary. Um, This is not just, you know, an aimless um, doxology that that Paul gives. This is actually meant to be instructive. Um, Each of these components... Paul's trying to instruct these Christians that they did absolutely nothing uh, to have and to obtain what they have today and what we have today, which is uh, to be a new creation. So as we come to verse 4, Paul transitions from his vivid description of once we, what we once were to describe the astonishing timing 
astonishing timing of our salvation. So when we were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and indulgences, when we were spending our lives in malice and envy, when we were full of hate and actively hating one another, God's kindness and his love for mankind was ushered in. So that's when his kind, kindness and love for mankind came. And that's when our salvation came. By now it becomes abundantly clear what Paul is doing in this section. As these Christian believers were likely groaning at the unreasonableness of verses 1 and 2 towards such a pagan people, Paul reminds them and us that the arrival of God's kindness and his love was while we were an unbearable people. So the implication is clear. George Knight says they must not wait, these Christians, they must not wait until all people of verse 2 have become Christians or even until such people do some good work or something decent before they show them gentleness and kindness. We can't wait around for these people to change before we exude the character of Christ towards them. So as we approach verse 5, as you can see here, we have the basis of our salvation. So the timing of our salvation, and now the basis of our salvation. Verse 5. <clears throat> so the original text, actually, in the Greek, these two prepositional phrases, you'll see them there in verse 5. Um, not on the basis of our deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. These two prepositional phrases are actually front-loaded in verse 5. Uh, and the reason I think that's significant is because Paul's actually trying to create a climactic effect here. So what he's ultimately saying is <clears throat> not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to God's mercy, he saved us. <clears throat> has a different effect, um, a climactic effect when it's read that way. So Paul's saying we were not saved because of the works we have done, even in righteousness. And if that isn't the case, then why were we saved? On what basis were we saved, Paul? And Paul says here that it was according to or because of God's mercy. Nothing we did solely rooted and grounded on his mercy. A passage we just went through, or maybe not just went through, it's probably a few months ago, but Romans 5, um, 6 through 8, Paul says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to even die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So here we have the basis of our salvation, God's mercy and not our merit. And if we continue to move, we're moving quickly, I know. The means of our salvation the means of our salvation. So how were we saved? This is going to answer that question. How were we saved? Or what spiritual realities were surrounding our conversion? Now we all remember, this is years ago, um, the interaction between Nicodemus and, and Jesus in John 3 when Michael took us through that. <clears throat> and this is really what's getting, what Paul's getting at here. Nicodemus was perplexed at the idea of being born again. Um, and his head was about to explode. I could picture smoke coming out of his ears thinking, I'm about to crawl back in my mother's womb. Is that what you're asking me to do? And the reason he was perplexed is because this is something he couldn't do on his own. 
Um, this is something only God can do. And that's what we see here in verse 5, if you glance down there with me. Verse 5. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So that's what Paul's speaking of here. We were made new creations, a work that only can be attributed to God. So it becomes abundantly clear in this remarkable section that God is the one who did the saving. He's the one who did the washing. He's the one who did the regenerating and the renewing. It is him who stepped in and lavished us with incomprehensible grace. And I can't move on without mentioning the Trinitarian emphasis here um, in verses 5 and 6. It really is staggering. The Holy Spirit washed us with the washing of regeneration and renewal. The Spirit was poured out on us richly by the Father. And this was all done on the grounds of the work that Christ has accomplished. So as we continue to move, um, at the beginning of verse 7, you will see in your English translation, so that. And this introduces a purpose clause. Um, And as you can see, the purpose of our salvation. Paul says here that we were saved to become heirs. We were saved to become heirs of God. Or beneficiaries is another way to, to understand it. We would be recipients of eternal life. So why did God save an unworthy people? Seems rather aimless, right, from, from our rational standpoint. This, this passage tells us that it was to restore us to a right standing before him and to grant us the status of heir. <clears throat> this title also often has a familial nuance, so... What's being talked about here is actually a family. Uh, we were once we were saved to be presented as forgiven sons and daughters, to be brought into God's family. This should elicit images of adoption. So just picture that with me. We were we were unwanted. We were unbearable. We were disobedient, foolish, deceived. That's who we once were, and He adopted us. And not only adopted us, but gave us a an incomprehensible inheritance. So I know this is an extremely rich section, and once again, we could spend the whole afternoon here. But what I want us to get at, and I want us to realize, is Paul's not doing this uh, by accident. We must not lose sight of what Paul's doing in this section. He goes into great detail to motivate us to have compassion towards a lost world around us, to have compassion Our own story is one of staggering kindness, unmerited love. So I've sensed my own heart and the comments of others that the gospel is to be cherished. I think we would all say that, right? The gospel is to be cherished. It's true. It's precious to us. But I do think we convince ourselves it's not inherently practical for life. Okay, it's something that happened in the past. It's a true event. Yes, it's powerful. That's how we we come to inherit eternal life. But we would... Often, practically, we live as if it has no implications on our life. Paul says here that it most definitely does. What God has done in our story, what God has done for each of us individually, all the glorious facets of the gospel are directly inform our own walk. These details provided here are not aimless. 
They are meant to remind us of how one-sided our salvation was. Because we do, we, we always, and I, I catch myself doing this as well, we always want to attribute something to our salvation. Well, we must have been likable or approachable or maybe there's something God saw in me that he didn't see in the next guy. And that's just not true. That's not true. Um, it's all of grace, all of mercy, um, and we should be showing the same thing to others. So, so far we explored two truths. <clears throat> First, an impartial conduct is required. Second, as we just saw, an intimate consideration is necessary. And lastly, we'll see an immense contribution is promised. An immense contribution is promised. So look at me at verse 8. <clears throat> Paul says, it is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So what we've experienced so far is instruction to, for our godly walk to actually walk godly. Uh, in verses 3 and 7, we've Three through seven, we've been given a fuel, a motivation to actually carry that out. Um, one commentator actually says, uh, in regard to our previous section, that mere human sympathy is not strong enough. Um, what we need is is actually a divine, um, divine fuel, and that's what He's provided for us. And now we even get greater motivation as we realize that this is not in vain. There's actually an immense contribution that we're making. Um, so this, this word at the beginning of verse 8, just briefly, um, it's one that Paul uses, I think, five times in the pastoral epistles. Uh, this is a trustworthy statement. Um, this acts as an affirmation to what Paul has just written, um, not only to be true, but it's something to be embraced. Um, so it's not merely a, a true statement. It's something that we're supposed to cling on to. Um, and this trustworthy statement, I think, likely refers to verses 5 through 7. Uh, so if we look back there, maybe... There we go. So five through seven is just this, this display of what God has done. Um, and the conclusion I came to is I believe this is what this trustworthy statement Paul's referring to. Um, and these, these things, if you look there with me, he transitions to say, concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. Uh, these things referred to in verse eight, once again, is up for debate. Um, and I don't know that I've completely landed somewhere um, but for the sake of our study this morning, we can be confident that this entails all we have observed this morning. There is no doubt. Everything we covered this morning is supposed to be insisted upon by Titus. Um, he is meant to vigorously uh, promote these things in the church, insist upon them. And that's the instruction here for Titus. So why must Titus be so committed to the proclamation of these truths? Um, well, it is so that we who believe would be careful and intentional to engage in good deeds. You see that in verse 8. And this promised contribution is what we see next. So these good deeds that we're supposed to be engaged with, this, um, this conduct, this godly conduct in an ungodly world, actually makes a, a tangible contribution. It makes an immense contribution to those around us. 
So I look around at both the people of God and even those of the world, and everybody wants to have a life of purpose. Uh, that's universal. Everyone wants to be um, purposeful. Everyone wants to know why they're on this earth, um, what they're doing and investing their time in actually is producing fruit. Um, it's not in vain. This is true of all of us. And as God's people, we desire to be useful. Um, I think we would all say that this morning. <clears throat> Kelly and I often pray. Uh, I think we finish almost all of our prayers with pleading with the Lord to make us useful. Um, we want to live a fruitful life. Well, here at the end of verse 8, we have a wonderful promise. Um, this impartial, godly conduct, this pursuit of good deeds, this peaceable and gentle attitude, attitude towards all people is not in vain. At the end of verse 8, we see Paul says here, it is both good and it is profitable for those around us. So there appears to be an echo of verse 2 here. This impartial and sweeping conduct before all people is good and profitable for all people. <laughs> we may not see the fruit of that. Um, there's going to be interactions we have with people weekly where we may exude gentleness, we may exude patience, and may be peaceable, and we may get even pushback for that. Um, people may scoff at that. But what we do know is that before God, this is a fruitful life. Um, and it's not in vain. So just stay encouraged. This is a promise that we can cling to. Um, and it's not easy. And Paul knows that. So that's why he spent most of his time here in our, in our passage this morning to provide us with a, a profound motivation. Um, so as we continue to go through just our week, uh, we continue to even work with unbelievers, um, interact with them on a weekly basis, um, we must avoid a posture of arrogance. Um, this is who we once were, and Paul wants us to look in the mirror long and hard, um, look at that old middle school yearbook that we all probably stuffed away in our, in our closet, or maybe that home video that should have been trashed long ago. He's asking <laughs> us to look intently at who we once were. So at the beginning of our time this morning, we considered a thought. That thought was a common ground of every mature Christian is that they never forget their condition before Christ. So that's all I think we need to, if there's one thing to walk away from, it would be that. Uh, one truth that we must cling to this morning, it's that when we look at the world, we're to look at the world through a particular lens. And we're to be softened in our heart, not hardened. Um, there's a lot of hard hearts that I'm seeing, um, not only um, in myself, but I think in the church and in all around us. Um, and I think as it is here in the island of Crete, their evangelistic efforts really depend on, obviously, the sovereignty of God. He's, gonna, he's sovereign over those things, but he uses people. Um, he uses people to exude Christ-like attitude. He uses people in their testimony to be effective in evangelism. And that is fertile ground uh, to talk about our God uh, is with a posture and with an attitude of gentleness, peaceability, um, obedient to, to our rulers, uh, and to be people who show every consideration for all people. So I encourage you this week uh, to see others through your own lens of salvation, your own rescue, and to be assured that your good deeds towards even the most difficult people is not in vain. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, you 
have been so merciful to us, um, a wretched people. Paul was well acquainted with this truth in his own life. Uh, He referenced it often, um, how he was the chief of sinners. And how much more are we? Lord, you have saved us. You have exclusively done a work uh, that we cannot do for ourselves. And how dare us to look at the world uh, with disdain, with hatred. Um, Although we hate the sin we see around us, Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts um, towards these deceived, um, disobedient, and ultimately um, damned people apart from your grace. Um, So, Lord, we do ask, God, that you would um, continue to work in our hearts, continue to soften our hearts. Um, Help us, Lord, to ground our evangelistic efforts in a life that reflects Christ um, and his kindness towards us. Uh, We love you, and we thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.